You've got a handout there that I've placed on your seat. At one point, Job says, I will teach you about the power of God. The ways of the Almighty I will not conceal. That's a wonderful line because I think it's so true of the theology of Job. I will teach you about the power of God. The ways of the Almighty I will not conceal. Sometimes we look at the book, though, as uh, more of a mystery, one that is very difficult to uh, grapple with and to deal with. I've divided our lessons into five. Um, fully aware of the Advent teaching pattern that comes and goes and floats and whatever. Um, so there is built in some overlap uh, to catch people up. And uh, you can always go back and, and listen. The Advent tapes everything. I'm surprised it doesn't tape the conversations in the hall because you, you can get everything online. Oh, maybe it does. Uh, <laughs> It's like the uh, national security. Um, the five lessons I've outlined there, uh, God will have his way with the righteous. We may not like that particular one, but God indeed has his way with the righteous. And there's a bigger issue always than our peace and prosperity. There's a much bigger issue that's at stake. Our witness of the gospel and of God's grace in a very fallen and broken world and sometimes we find ourselves in that fallenness and that brokenness to bear witness to the gospel. Uh, number two, what looks like bondage to us may actually be proof of our freedom. When there is no earthly, earthly, worldly reason for putting our trust in God, Job placed his trust in God. Everything was removed. Everything was taken away. And yet he sustained his trust in the Lord. The one we'll focus on today, number three, we learn from Job how to comfort those who are suffering. Four, uh, true piety is honest and bold and is centered on God. Uh, you just listen to Job. Um, and uh, I think I shared with you, I have become a, an advocate for Job. Any teacher, any pastor that begins raising questions about the validity of Job's expression, just um, I'm ready to step in and be his lawyer um, if he needed one. Um, he does a pretty good job himself. But uh, true piety is honest and bold and is centered in God. God is the one to whom we are meant to vent to. Our prayers should really be honest to God. And Job shows us in a, a wonderful way how to do that and that he does it. And then number five, we'll finish up a deepening understanding of God and his ways is costly. A famous American said a few weeks ago, the day I realized it is smart to be shallow was the day, no, let me, the day I realized it can be smart to be shallow was for me a deep experience. The day I realized it was smart to be shallow was for me a deep experience. Well, you can't read Job with that philosophy. The day I realized it was smart to be shallow was a deep experience for me. If your desire is to be shallow, avoid Job at all costs because it will lead you where you don't want to go 
to truths you probably don't necessarily want to understand. Now, I want to, because the title is The Gospel According to Job, there's five points I would want to keep in mind for every lesson. Job and Jesus are a lot alike, and I think those similarities is what knits it together and makes Job the gospel. They don't deserve to suffer, Jesus and Job. They're victims of injustice. And Job understands that and will not let anybody erode that understanding. They do indeed not deserve the suffering they receive. The second comparison between the two, they are warriors in a spiritual battle. The stakes are much higher than they appear to be. There's a cosmic confrontation with consequences far beyond their personal experience. There's a bigger issue going on, as we know from chapter 1, that Job was not privy to. He didn't understand that dynamic that was going on behind the scenes. That's what gave him uh, the wonderful witness and testimony from God's side that he remained faithful even without that knowledge. Made his witness all that better, even though he thought otherwise. Number three, both Job and Jesus distinguish between their will and God's will. We know that from Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Both of them have this clash between their will and God's will, but it is God who wins in their consciousness. Number four, both cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job says this um, in line after line. Jesus said it in one line. Job pleads, argues, questions, debates with God. He desperately wants to take up his case with God. All of this goes to show the truth of Job's own words, that his greatest pain was his broken fellowship with God. This is what Job feels most deeply. My joy in unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What a line. My joy in unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. And number five, you see, I'm just wanting to, these, these are foundational understanding, I think, for the relationship of Job and Jesus. Both learn from their suffering. We know that Jesus did. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And what looks like bondage to us may be proof of our freedom. The writer Philip Yancey, in his book, Where is God When It Hurts, gave this line to me years and years ago. It's one of his first books, Philip Yancey's first books, and uh, one of them. And uh, I think that that's right on with understanding who Job is. Job did not know why he was being so afflicted, and in the absence of that knowledge, made his freedom complete. There was absolutely no worldly reason why he should continue to remain faithful to God. So with that understanding, let's pray. Lord God, please guide us now with your word open, with our hearts and minds open as well, that you would lead us through your word, by your spirit, to the glory of the Father, in the name of the Son. Amen. Uh, this is a book that I, I referred to from a magazine article um, last week. I ordered the book. I got it on Friday. I'm about halfway through the book. It's the story 
Hope Heals by a couple, uh, surnamed Wolf, Catherine, and Jay. Um, and I was surprised to learn that they're Sanford graduates. Um, Jay, uh, you know, I knew from the magazine article that uh, Jay did his law degree at Pepperdine. And I just, when I saw the word Sanford, mentally, I saw thought Stanford. So on the third uh, try with um, the reference to Sanford and the idea of moving from Montgomery to Birmingham, it suddenly dawned on me that these people are local. Uh, they don't live here, but some of you know their story. I can tell by uh, the nods. Uh, and it is a beautiful story. This book is really well written. Uh, they had helped doing that, and uh, it's really worth the read. He talks about, um, at one point, uh, Catherine spent 40 days in uh, the ICU, uh, one of the longest extended periods in ICU uh, in that UCLA uh, hospital in uh, the neurosurgery intensive care unit. And uh, one night she just couldn't get to sleep because she didn't know where, um, where Jay was. And Jay was spending the night across the street in a hotel, having spent many nights up all through the night. And uh, a nurse called him and said, Catherine's just not gonna go to sleep. She's not gonna rest until you uh, see her. So he threw on his clothes, came over at 3 a.m., and she finally went off to sleep, reassured that of his presence. And he grabbed a Bible that was there in the ICU. I opened a Bible from her bedside table and read through Romans again. And then I flipped to Job, a book I had honestly hardly ever read before because it seemed like a kind of downer. So you're, how old's your son? He's four. He's four. Uh, they were talking about moving from reading about Samson to reading about Job this week, and he wasn't very impressed. <laughs> I flipped to Job, a book I had honestly hardly ever read because it seemed like a kind of downer. And the story opens with these words, in the land of us, and we know that's a real place. It's detailed historically, geographically. There lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. I couldn't help, he writes, but superimpose Catherine's name there. In the city of angels, there lived a woman whose name was Catherine. The woman was blameless and upright. She feared God and shunned evil. I read through the entire book that way. This most ancient of biblical texts felt so strikingly modern, so relevant to Catherine's story. I was stunned. I considered the reality that sometimes suffering comes because of the decisions we make. Sometimes it comes as a way of God to gauge his place in our hearts. Sometimes it comes simply as a byproduct of living in a world that is in a state of falling apart. Yet no matter the origin of the suffering, God's presence remains the same. He finds us in our hurts. And he goes on to really describe the complexity of evil. And that's our first point. A theology of evil is complex. It's not simple. I think obedience and faithfulness and what's required of us by the grace of God is exceedingly simple. This was a thesis I came to in, in studying the book of Revelation thoroughly. 
is that evil is so convoluted, it is so complex, it is so intertwined, it is so difficult to grasp. Its totality is systemic and demonic and all of that. But whenever obedience is described in the book of Revelation, it's just so simple. Stay alert, keep in the word, be faithful. We don't need to make of discipleship a mystery. What it means to be faithful and obedient is really very clear. But evil is complex and difficult. So the book of Job corrects the false perspective that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. And that's what plays such a valuable role in our theology, is that the simple understanding that if you're righteous, God will bless If you're wicked, God will curse, is overturned in the book of Job. It's a lot more complicated and convoluted than that. And yet the counselors of Job, the friends of Job, you remember they came and and they came from all over. um, Again, from real places, from Arabia, from Palestine, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far come. And there's a cycle in the drama of Job of conversations where each speaks and then Job responds. And that cycle is repeated three times over. So it's Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Sophar, Job. And that cycle goes for three times. And then when you really want God to speak, finally, at the end of this dialogue, Elihu, in a very sophomoric way, enters into the picture and he talks and he talks and he talks and he talks until you feel like saying, shut up, will you? That's a little bit of the cycle of Job. But after Job laments his birth and he curses the day of his birth, and I would suggest that we ought to identify that curse that he makes with God's curse of a fallen and broken world in Genesis 3. It's right to make that curse. It's interesting, I had a um, student preach on Friday from Galatians 3 on the curse of the law. And uh, really informative, very good message, A, work. But I said, you know, it was an insider's description of understanding the curse and the law and the grace of God. I said, you know, this culture, when it thinks of curse, immediately thinks of giving the finger or swearing or the F word or something like that. But what curse means, really, in Scripture is a diagnosis. It's the diagnosis of our fallenness and our brokenness. It is the doctor staring at us in the eye and saying, you know, I've got some hard news for you. You've got cancer. We're going to do everything in our power to help you. That's what the curse means in our culture. It is not just getting angry at all. That's what the curse means popularly. Well, Job curses the day of his birth. He laments all of that, all within the realm of real worship. And then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, and I'm quoting from chapter 4, verses uh, 7 and 8. I probably should stick with my notes, although I find notes very confining. Um... Verse 7 of chapter 4, remember, well, okay, I, I can't. Listen to what Eliphaz says as the star. He's heard Job, okay? If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? 
Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many. You've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld those who are stumbling. You've made firm the feeble knees, but now it's come to you and you're impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? Great. Stop. Stop there, Eliphaz. That's a worthy statement. You know, now it's happened to you, Job. You have been great with other people. And will it not be the integrity of your soul that sustains you? Great word. Stop. But he doesn't. You know, uh, um, with Gil in the room, I, I feel like we should be doing a duet because, in a way, in, from your counseling side. But you know, I, I usually the fewer words, the better, because the fewer words communicate. I want to listen rather than talk to you. You really only have about twelve or fifteen seconds. Uh, you got a sentence or a line there, and then stop. Stop and make sure that the line is is a good line. Eliphaz begins well. Then he says this. Remember who that was who, remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish. You see, he right away goes into judging Job. Job, this never happens to good people. So obviously you've done something wrong. Well, um, and it's going to get only worse. Because as Job resists that strategy of thinking, they become more vehement in their accusation and their denouncement. Verse 17 of chapter 4, can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the... You can't, Job. You can't really be pleasing to God. That's impossible. You're just a person. You're just humanity. And Job's counselors have no idea what's at stake. They have no idea that God is really taking great pride in Job's resilience, his righteousness, his faithfulness. That's what this is all about. Satan's vain accusations that Job is only obedient, he's only faithful because you've blessed him. Take the blessings away and he'll curse you. So God's permits Satan to take all the blessings away. But Job doesn't curse God. He curses the injustice of it. Number two, moving right along. We are not authorized to speak for God. We're not authorized to speak for God. Boy, I have to remind myself of this as a pastor. That that's not my job is to speak for God. 
My job is to try to understand what God's Word says and to share that with others and to point people to Jesus Christ. But I'm the advocate for my fellow parishioner. I'm not the advocate for God. He doesn't need a lawyer. Uh, in this story by uh, Catherine Wolfe, um, she has uh, almost uh, two-thirds of the back of her brain removed because of this hemorrhage, but the frontal lobe is fine. So the cognitive, emotional, thinking part of her has remained fine. But she suffers a great deal of paralysis and um, things like swallowing. Uh, she can't eat, um, and all uh, everything that kind of is physical is messed up with um, this hemorrhage. And so she's reduced to um, an electronic board to communicate her messages. This is after this is some 60 days after um, this has taken place, and. She said one of the most constant things she needed to say to people was, I am the same inside. I'm the same person. I don't look anything like I used to look. I don't have anything that I used to have physically, but I am the same person. And I just, uh, you know, it's a... It's like when you're told that somebody's hard of hearing and you shout at them. Um, you know, it's just the wrong approach is to take the physical external appearance and have that suggest that the person now has, has changed. Obviously, you can have an accident like that and profoundly changes the inside as well. But in her case, it didn't. And I think we just have to be very careful um, to remember who we're speaking to and that we're not speaking for God. Uh, at the bottom of the page, um, one seminary student recalls friend's comments after she and her husband found out that their son Joshua was born blind. And these are pretty typical. Um, and I think we, you know, I would cut a lot of people slack because so often how difficult it is in a situation of suffering and extreme um, uh, anguish to say the right thing. I guess I want to have people cut me slack, <laughs> so I cut them a lot of slack too. But confess all your sins to God and then pray harder. Uh, kind of an awful thing to say. Uh, if Joshua isn't healed, it's because you haven't prayed hard enough. Uh, cheer up. You should be getting over this by now. Uh, count your blessings. You're lucky. At least Joshua isn't dying. Um, obviously, that's extreme. I mean, I'm giving you extreme comments here um, that thoughtful people wouldn't say. But um, anyone who's suffered has heard those kinds of comments for the most part, I think. Uh, Job's counselors frustrate Job's lament by twisting his argument. They don't hear Job. They condemn him for a perfection he never claimed. Um, I want to just read Job 13. I don't have it listed there. 13, 1 through 3, um, in terms of this theme of not speaking for God and wanting uh, his counselors to respond. This is reading from Job 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this. 
So all the things you're talking to me about, I've seen, I understand. My ear is heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? You don't have to talk for God. How encouraging it would have been if Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far listened and then said, Oh, I understand. I agree. I shared your concern. Uh, Number three, suffering matters to God. Nobody better shake my hand after uh, this or you're going to get a cold. Um, From the start, Job's counselors attacked the very truth that is at the crux of the confrontation between God and Satan, namely that Job's righteousness matters greatly to God. Eliphaz, Bildad, and so forth, if you read their responses, are so dismissive of Job's uh, understanding of righteousness. Number four, blame-casting excuses are distancing from those who suffer. One of the reasons we want to come up with a solution that seems to blame the person that is suffering is because then we don't have to become involved with that person. So, you know, if a person has abused drugs and ends up suffering, we can excuse our non-involvement by the fact that we can blame them. And I think that's the kind of excuse that Christ takes away from us. That regardless of the reasons for the suffering, we have been placed in that person's life to be a help, to be a light, to alleviate the suffering, to pray, to be concerned. God will take care of the consequences. That's not our job. I think our job is, and with that, a loving thing is with wisdom and love. I mean, I'm not saying one does not process that and help a person out of, um, for example, substance abuse. But I am saying that that's not, uh, it's not about us. Uh, In chapter 20 of Job, so far, responds uh, after listening to Job, Beautifully expressed, and we'll talk about this next week in chapter 19. But so far, the Naamite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me, because my haste within me. I hear censor that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this? So far says in effect, Job, you're offending me. And so now it's been made about him. Here Job is suffering. He's at the extent of his physical hanging on. And Zophar has the audacity to say, you're upsetting me. You're making me feel poor. 
Well, it doesn't become about us. Blame casting excuses our distances from those who suffer. Uh, I italicize here from chapter 16, verse 1 through 5, Job's uh, assessment of his counselors. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? I also could speak like you. If you were in my place, I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. We're not responsible for alleviating suffering. We are responsible for alleviating suffering, not adding to it. In this book, um, one of the things that was the joy of Catherine's life was eating. She was thin as a rail and she worked as a model, but eating was a social uh, reality for her. She loved eating. And there, it was questionable whether or not the nerves uh, in her throat for swallowing would ever come back. And a specialist in that area took Ray aside and said, it's not going to happen. She is not going to learn how to swallow again. Those nerves have been too far damaged. She'll always have a gastrointestinal tube. And Ray left that office just stunned. And he knew that if he, and the specialist said, you have got to tell Catherine that that's what's happening because she's obsessing. And he knew that if he went back into Catherine's room and said, you're never going to swallow again, you're never going to eat again, that that would be it. That'd be the first domino. And then all the rest of the dominoes, she'd give up. And so she didn't say to Catherine. And uh, as the story goes, her swallowing did come back. The nerves did heal. Uh, She does eat now. Um, So the specialist said never would it happen. And Ray didn't feel that he could give that word to her. Now that brings back to my mind when my when I was two years old, my father was uh, diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer, and a team of six surgeons, as the story goes, I was two, uh, opened him up, and he was just filled with cancer, and um, they clearly didn't get everything. Sewed him back up, and the surgeon who did it said to my mother, "He's got three months to to live. Get everything in order." My parents were just on the verge of signing for a house. And my mother didn't tell my dad. And they signed for the house. And uh, there was no more surgery and no more therapy. And my dad lived 18 more years. Went into remission without any explanation. My brother was born. And we really had a mother and father for most of our growing up years. Um, So I'm glad my mother didn't tell my father that he was about to die. Um, It was in her wisdom, her spirit-guided wisdom for that. Uh, I don't uh, recommend that as a marital policy. Uh, I think openness is, is the key. Um, 
Number five, we're just really quickly, we're responsible for alleviating suffering, not adding to it. Uh, read the small print on Dr. Paul Brand. Dr. Paul Brand worked in India for 18 years, particularly on Hansen disease and leprosy. And I think that this statement of him is just, it couldn't be better. It's the kind of advice that um, thoughtful people would give. Uh, when I ask patients and their families who helped you in your suffering, I hear a strange, imprecise answer. The person described rarely has smooth answers and a winsome, effervescent personality. It is someone quiet, understanding, who listens more than talks, who does not judge or even offer much advice. A sense of presence, someone there when I needed him. A hand to hold, an understanding, an understanding bewildered hug, a shared lump in the throat. We want psychological formulas as precise as those techniques I study in my surgery manuals. But the human psyche is too complex for a manual. The best we can offer is to be there, to see, and to touch. Now, at the risk of embarrassing you, David, um, on November 3rd, I came down with really intense uh, nerve pain in my left arm. I thought it was just a bad case of tennis elbow. I got an x-ray, saw an orthopedic guy. Um, they, lim they said, it's coming from your neck. And... Um, they gave me pain pills, they gave me steroids, they gave me physical therapy, but nothing, nothing alleviated the intense pain. I left that, I ended the last semester in just agony. Taught my classes, I could not sit, I could not stand, I had to move, I couldn't sleep. Three weeks of that. I'm sitting in the pew here at the Advent next to David, and David says, how are you? Now, I don't know if he felt how restless I was in the service, and it was a pretty good sermon, so he didn't understand why I'd be so restless. Um, and I said, I'm not too good. And I explained, and he said, well, you need an MRI. And I have a neurosurgeon that you ought to see. Well, two days later or so, I had an MRI, and I saw Dr. Harsh from Briarwood, and about three days later, I had the surgery. Uh, and the pain immediately left my left arm. Uh, and, you know, I, I could still be sitting in the pew suffering on Sunday uh, if somebody wise and experienced hadn't said, you need an MRI. And he hooked me up with Dr. Harsh, which may have taken a long time to connect with. But uh, so that pastoral physician, David, I'm very appreciative of. That's what we need to do. We need to be advocates, advocates for those who are suffering. Need to put on, on the side the, the sense of judging and accusation and blame casting that distances ourselves from really caring for the person and just being God's presence in their lives the best we can, guided by his spirit. So it's simple. Oh. It's not easy, but it's simple to know what to do. Um, and Job gives us instructions on that. Ah, may the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy, and as we put our hope in him, may, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.